This morning, though, we'll be in Daniel 7. So if you brought a Bible, you can turn with me there. And if you didn't and would like one, in the back, there's some blue Bibles. Feel free to jump up and go back and grab one. And in those Bibles, we'll be on page 434. Page 434. Um, If you're new to the book of Daniel, we've been working our way through it a while. And uh, a lot of churches that study the book of Daniel will go the first six chapters and then they'll quit. And you'll see today why that is. Should be a lot of fun. Um, Different kinds of writing convey different things. And most of the time we instinctively understand that when we pick up a different kind of literature. We just instinctively understand, oh, I'm supposed to read this differently. For example, If I were to say to you, the stars fell from the sky, the sun melted like wax, and the moon dripped blood, then you would not be expecting the next sentence to be, tomorrow there'll be a light breeze and the high will be about 75. Now why? Well, because we know the first sentence is an example of saying something like, I had a particularly horrifying day while the second sentence is nothing more than a weather forecast. Now, when we come to our Bibles, we unfortunately tend to turn our instincts off. But we shouldn't. Because the Bible is written in a variety of genres, different kinds of writing that, are, that should be understood in different ways. And so don't turn your brain off when you pick up your Bible. And don't let your instincts go away. Use them. That's what they're for. While Daniel chapters 1 through 6 are written as a series of consecutive stories or narratives, they are actual events that really happened, Daniel chapter 7 through 12 is very different. It's a collection of what's called apocalyptic visions. The word apocalypse just refers to the end times. So it's telling us things that are true now, are becoming true, and what will be in the end what happens. Instead of stories demonstrating that God is above all, that's what the stories have done, the narratives, in the second half of the book, we're given powerful images that depict God's above allness. Why the change in genre, you might ask? It is unusual in the middle of a book for this to happen. Why the change? Well, it's because apparently there are things God wants to tell us in apocalyptic literature, that narrative can't do. God wants us to see, to hear, to smell, to feel certain spiritual realities. And the only way to do that is to tell it to us like this. That's what this kind of writing is meant to do. Now, is it weird? Yes. Is it unusual for us? Yes. Do most of us read anything similar at any other time. No. But that makes it all the more precious. Is it hard? Yes. Will you in some way be confused and dumbfounded today? Probably. The time frame Daniel 7 through 12 spans is enormous. It extends from the 6th century BC when it was written, presses into the first coming of Christ in the first century, and then way into the future, into the second coming of Christ. It's a massive amount of time. And while these visions in the second half of the book vary in detail, 
They all essentially communicate the same thing. God is in control. Human kingdoms come and go, but God will be on his throne forever. And there's coming a day when God's kingdom will fill the whole earth. Now, God in his kindness has given us the scriptures, and in the scriptures we have all that we need for life and godliness, even scriptures that are more confusing than others. May the same spirit that inspired Daniel all those years ago to write this down help us today as we seek to understand. So let's read together starting in chapter one, uh, chapter 7, uh, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given over it. After this I saw the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were like eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. His hair of his head was pure, like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. That should give us some comfort. <laughs> I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning this. And he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Now watch these two verses. 
these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Since this chapter opens by placing us in Belshazzar's first year as king, then we are chronologically back between the events of chapter 4 and chapter 5. So Daniel saw this vision while there was still a Babylonian king on the throne, and the Jews were still in exile, longing to get back home. And right from the beginning of the vision, it's clear we're dealing with something that overlaps what we've already covered in the book. But now it's described to us in a highly symbolic way in order to give us new, fresh detail. Daniel saw four great beasts coming out of the sea. The first was like a lion, but it had eagle's wings. The second was like a bear with ribs between its teeth. The third, like a leopard with four wings and four heads. And then the fourth, did you notice? There's giving given to us no corresponding animal. Apparently it's so particular and bizarre, there's nothing to compare it to. Daniel himself described it, though, as terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. All that we know is it had iron teeth and a ridiculous amount of horns. It's a ten-pointer. So what are we to make of this opening scene? Well, first of all, apocalyptic writing is clearly highly symbolic. It uses images. It communicates figuratively and metaphorically to tell us true things. Although not everything listed in the vision should be seen as having a literal, direct, one-to-one correspondence. To say that a different way, Daniel was terrified not because he thought when he woke up an actual beast was going to destroy him. He was terrified because of what the beasts represent. These beasts all are strong and vile, and the last one is particularly heinous. They all rose out of the sea. Now, In the Scriptures, the sea is often symbolic of evil, and hostility, chaos, mystery, the unknown. So this is not a happy vision. We would say this is a nightmare. Now, a second thing to notice about this vision is, doesn't it sound rather familiar? At least parts of it. Well, if you were with us back in Daniel chapter 2, then you may remember that there were four nations listed, all connected to the same statue. The same four kingdoms here are pictured in these four beasts. Historically, we now understand them to be referring to Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But one of the most fascinating things I found this week as I was preparing for our time together this morning is that while Daniel chapter 2 lists the same kingdoms, they're described very different in Daniel 7. It seems as though in Daniel 2... As you think about the kingdoms of the world, they are pictured in such a way that they look like what we think of them as looking like. Nebuchadnezzar 
and Babylon are bright, shiny gold. They attract our eyes. We marvel at the shininess of the dazzling world. And yet, in chapter 7, they're pictured from God's perspective. Beastly. Evil. If you know a bit of history, then you might consider later this week, uh, perhaps around the dinner table as a family, or maybe with a roommate, or somebody you're discipling, or in your gospel community, you might consider talking about why those four nations are represented by those four beasts. We can't know for sure exhaustively, but it's very interesting to speculate why those animals with those traits depicted those nations. These are things that we can look back on and know that Daniel wouldn't yet have grasped. But even as you do that, make sure that in this kind of writing, you don't get so caught up in the forest, in the trees, that you miss the forest. Because the main emphasis is not who these nations are. Notice when Daniel's given the interpretation, he's not told that. The point isn't who these nations were, or even what the details correspond to. The point is what happens to each and every nation. So at the beginning, we have these four beasts coming up out of the sea, and then the scene shifts in the vision to a throne room. Did you notice that? We go from the chaos and mystery and vileness of the sea into the peace of a throne room. And God is referred to as the Ancient of Days in verse 9. God takes His throne and He is the most honorable judge. He's in His courtroom. And in this courtroom, God will dispense justice purely and perfectly. While each beast represents a global superpower, each one are nothing compared to God. When God strikes His gavel, all fall silent. My guess is, those of you who are Christians and pray regularly, if you think back over the last week or maybe even month of your prayers, you probably not, have not addressed God as the Ancient of Days. It's not a title we think much about. But what it means is incredibly awe-inspiring. It means that God doesn't have a beginning and that God doesn't have an end. That He is eternal. And so with these heavenly beings all around Him, we see that God is utterly unique and undeniably superior. Even when compared with the most powerful people who have ever lived. God dispenses judgment and the beasts are judged and destroyed. Now the final part of this vision, the, the last aspect of it, is the most interesting and the most spicy. To make sure we don't miss it, would you look again with me at verse 13? This is the, the high point of the vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, on the cloud of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, a kingdom, that all people's nations and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that will not be destroyed. Now remember the context. God's people have been taken out of their place of living. And they are now a tiny group of foreigners in a pagan land. And they are nothing. They have no rights. They have no power. They have no influence. They have no ability to get anything done. Their homeland's been conquered. And most important, the power and commitment and love of God for them is in question. God says He rules. But if we'd been living then, it wouldn't have looked like it. God says He loves. But can you hear them saying, where is the love? God says He's good. But it sure doesn't seem like it here in Babylon. Brothers and sisters, have you had those kinds of days? Then this writing is for you. The original hearers or readers of Daniel 7 were a destitute bunch clinging to what was left of their faith. And this vision was designed to help them. Now back to it. God, the Ancient of Days, is there. He's there in the courtroom. He's dispensing justice. And then, stage right, somebody else enters. We don't know who it is when he first comes in, but he's described as one like a son of man. And to this son of man is given God's dominion, God's everlasting kingdom, and a people that should serve him forever. Now, who is this man? Well, the term in the Bible is understood in two ways. Number one, the term simply means a son of man, just means a human being. So stunningly, in this terrifying vision given to Daniel, a man came into God's presence and was given a global, never-ending kingdom and unilateral, unquestionable authority. With all the other kings and kingdoms of this world having gone bad, and with so much evil flowing from power, it's not hard to grasp why that would have scared Daniel. Imagine if God gave Hitler, or Khan, or Nero, or Stalin, an unending kingdom of supreme dominion. That is a genuinely horrible thought, isn't it? And no matter how good a president or a king might be, they're always commingled with evil. It's an awful thought. Daniel, as he saw this one like a human being being given that kind of rule, was terrified. And yet, this Son of Man is not only a human being. You see, the text says he's like a human being. But the bigger clue as to who this person is is the fact that he said to be going to God on or with the clouds. Clouds, believe it or not, are important in the Bible. They often symbolize God's glory or His presence and thus His divinity. Think for 
a few moments if you know some of the Scriptures about key moments in the Bible. And you'll often find that there in that moment is a cloud. So a couple examples. God had rescued uh, the nation of Israel out of Egypt, brought them to Sinai, and sent Moses. God sent Moses up a mountain in order to receive the Ten Commandments to tell God's people how to live. God met with Moses there, and what is there in the story? Good job. You're going to get stronger at this, all right? There's a cloud there. Or as the nation left Sinai in order to journey to Israel, what led them by the day? Good job. A cloud. Or maybe the really high point in the Old Testament in terms of this symbol, when the temple was finally finished and God came to dwell with His people in the midst of them, among them in the Holy of Holies, what is God's glory pictured as? A cloud. Or in the New Testament, when Jesus was on the mountain with a few of His disciples and He was transfigured, and God the Father said, this is My Son. God spoke from a cloud. Now this is just a small sample. Used in this way, the Scriptures are telling us God, in these occasions, is in the cloud. Now what does that tell us? Well, this Son of Man who came with the clouds is then both human and divine. And so what mystified and in fact terrified Daniel we now today look back on with all these years of redemptive history and marvel at and worship and praise. You see, as we turn the pages of our Bible past the Old Testament into the New, marking when Jesus came to earth, we find that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll often hear Jesus using his favorite self-designation, Son of Man. This one, like a son of man in the Gospels, is none other than the promised Messiah of Daniel chapter 7. Now, why is that good news? Well, Jesus is the most loving human being there's ever been. Jesus is the, the, the perfect blend of God and man. Jesus is therefore able to reveal to us fully and finally who God is and what God's like. And yet, He's also able to take our place doing all that we were supposed to do. Jesus, in other words, shows us in the fullest form what a human being is designed by God to be like. And yet, He also gives us the fullest, clearest picture of the character of God on earth there's ever been. This Jesus is gentle and lowly. He's a truth teller and a wound healer. As Jesus walked the earth, we see who God is. And we see who we can become. In His kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, the humble prostitute can worship. The lying tax collector is sought out and forgiven. Children get His full attention. Sick are healed, broken are whole. Sinners are redeemed. People like you and people like me get to know a God like that through Jesus Christ. Daniel didn't and couldn't grasp all of this because 
he was still looking ahead. But today, from our vantage point, we look back. And so we rejoice. And this is particularly wonderful news, isn't it? Let me explain why. You see, this scene of God the Father giving the kingdom and eternal dominion to Jesus, namely verses 13 and 14, let me ask you this morning to consider something. When does that happen? If you were to put a timeline to this chapter, and we were to narrow ourselves down on the, just those two verses, verses 13 and 14, when is it that what that describes is going to occur? It already did. It's already over. You see, after the Son of Man lived a perfect life of obedience, after He died a substitutionary death, after He rose again in victory, then all the great beasts were defeated. And in His ascension, in His return to heaven, He was given His kingdom. The Son of Man vindicated. Satan, the ultimate beast, destroyed or defeated and Christ ruling and reigning. Now, here's the key to how we know that. How do we know verses 13 and 14 are mainly already fulfilled? Because which way are the clouds going? They're not going from heaven to earth. In other words, this isn't talking about the second coming. They're going from earth to heaven. They're talking about Jesus' return. And so from this throne, Jesus now rules and reigns. He headed to the Ancient of Days, not from Him. Now it's true, of course, later in the New Testament it tells us that one day in the future, Jesus will come back. And 1 Thessalonians 4 says He'll come back in the clouds. And He'll come for His people. But brothers and sisters, we are already living in the fulfillment of verses 13 and 14. Now, why am I harping on that so hard? Well, it's because of what verse 18 says. It says, The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Verse 18, the verb is shall receive. But that was looking forward to this event that we now look back on. You see, brothers and sisters, if you've been forgiven of your sin, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you believe that God rose Him from the dead and that He is both Son and man, and if you've turned your life over to Him, then Jesus' good rule and reign, His kingdom, is already yours. You are not waiting for that to come true when you become good enough. Nor are you waiting for that to become true when Jesus returns. God has 
defeated evil kingdoms and given the everlasting kingdom to his divine son who reigns with God's people. Now I realize that's a lot of theology. Sort of like taking a big bite of fruitcake. Like why would somebody do that? You can't even swallow the stuff. But do you feel this truth down in your bones? If you feel as though you are a defeated Christian living a subpar Christian life and there is not much power to it at all, the reason for that is you have forgotten that this is true. If you're having trouble getting past a temptation or walking in an area of victory or standing courageously and speaking the truth, it's because you've lost sight that this isn't something you're waiting on. It's already yours. God's kingdom, God's king, and God's people reign with him forever already even on the days it doesn't feel like it. What Daniel looked ahead to, we now rejoice in. Now quickly, I want to read the rest of the passage so that you can clarify with me the dynamic of what we're trying to describe. This is a difficult chapter. Look at verse 19, would you? Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke to pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horns that came up and before which three of them fell. The horn had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. Friends, historically, this, this is referring mainly and chiefly or first to Rome. And church, not just church history, but all of history tells us that Rome's ge geographical rule and the duration of time it was on the throne is unparalleled in human history. So that's what's being described here. Verse 21, And I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, and it will be different from all the kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of its kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, but shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three Kings. There's a lot of numbers going on here. In apocalyptic literature, you should only take the number as referring to something literal with a direct one-to-one -one correspondence if you have a reason to. If there's something else outside of that literature that tells you to do that. If not, then the number should be seen symbolic. Ten represents fullness or completion or an ongoing, enduring number of somethings. And so this isn't referring to ten literal kings. It's simply saying, after Rome falls, there's going to be a whole bunch of kingdoms for the rest of time. And God's over them all. 
And yet it is telling us that one in particular is going to be awful, heinous, acutely bad. We know that because other texts in Scripture confirm that for us. That one is represented by this, this horn. Now if we look at verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints, and shall think to change the times in the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Whenever my mom would put me in detention, that's what it always felt like. And the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed in the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heavens shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. Verse 28 is of such comfort. That's the end of the chapter. <laughs> Daniel doesn't quite get it all. And I say amen to that. Now, I ask for your graciousness here because time-wise, we can't do a deep dive. Instead, we're just going to do flyover. And so I would encourage you, commend you this week to get together with other Christians and read the passage and talk more about what you see. And over time, we'll get more and more familiar with this kind of writing. But let me just briefly talk about two things from these verses. Number one, it's very important to see that this chapter from beginning to end is about the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign, where God is and what happens where God's people are. At our point in history, this kingdom, we would say, is both already here and yet not yet fully here. And both of those elements are represented in Daniel 7. In the first part of what we just read, it's talking about the already. But in the second part, it bleeds into the not yet. You see, God is above time. And so in this vision that was given to Daniel, the duration of that vision was referring to the period of time from Jesus' first coming all the way through to His second coming. So it's talking both about the first time he came, and the next time he'll come. Now, let me put that a slightly different way. We mustn't see the establishment of Jesus' kingdom and the full final experience of it as happening in an instantaneous event. It happens over a duration of time in multiple events. Daniel 7 shows us how that works itself out. Theologians talk about this as the kingdom has already been inaugurated in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but the kingdom hasn't yet fully been consummated, which will return, which will happen when Jesus returns. But don't let that cause you to miss the larger point here. Jesus and his people already rule and already reign over evil. And yes, we will have days in which we don't feel like it, because it's not yet fully our experience. Because it's not yet here on earth. Now, if all that feels hard to understand, like the, second coming, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus being pictured as, an, as a single vision, and it's like a chocolate vanilla swirl ice cream. 
It's just all mixed together. And you can't undo that. Like you can't get a knife and cut the chocolate away from the vanilla, right? It's all together. That's what this vision is describing. So how do we get our heads around this? Because it's awfully confusing. Well, let me try to put it to you this way. A pregnant woman, pregnant with her first child, is already a mother. Yes, it's true that she has yet to hold that baby in her arms and look eyeballs to eyeballs. But she's holding that precious one in her womb. She's already a mom, even though she's not yet heard her child cry or coo. That glowing pregnant woman has never nursed, and yet she ought to already be thinking of herself as a mother. She will experience motherhood in an intensified way after getting more and more and more pregnant and then having the hardship of labor. But she ought to now live like she's already a mom because she is. That, brothers and sisters, is the way we live as Christians. We are already pregnant, if you will, with the kingdom of God. We just don't know when the due date is. You would never tell a mother, pregnant, don't live like a mother. Keep drinking and smoking and doing drugs. It won't matter to the baby at all. And we know that not to be true. Why do Christians live like holy ones today, even though we've not yet fully experienced that holiness? Because we're Christians. You see, God has defeated evil kingdoms and given everlasting kingdom to the divine Son of Man who reigns with God's people. And God will fully and finally do that in His return. Now this stands out in this vision and its interpretation because of these ten horns. Because the ten horns are meant to refer to all that nations that are continuing to come. And yes, it refers to this one little horn. And by the way, I have absolutely no idea who that is. No one else does either. Don't read or pay attention to people that tell you they do. They don't. There is no way to correspond to that with something. It hasn't even yet happened. It's meant to represent something that is scary. But Christians need not fear. Because we're already assured of Jesus' inevitable and unending victory. Whatever hardships would come, Jesus reigns. And we are with Him in that victory already. Amen? Now, you have very kindly endured some craziness. Thank you. Truly, thank you. So what does this mean? What do we do with it? I mean, we have spanned nearly the entire biblical story from beginning to end. From Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of time until the end of the thereafter. What is all of this for? Well, friends, contrary to what you might like might, might feel, apocalyptic literature wasn't put in the Bible to spawn humongous thick books that only people with PhDs in seminaries can read. 
not what this is for. It's also not for elaborate, crazy, ridiculous charts and YouTube videos with scary music in the background. That's not what it's for. The current reality of Jesus' victory and its final consummation yet to come are for the playground and for the cubicle. They're for the dorm room and the doctor's office. They're for the prison cell and the funeral. You see, everything you and I face in this life is in some way tainted by evil. There is some sense in which all the things that we go through leave us stained with shed tears. From state-sponsored persecution to the unsaved, disinterested, aloof husband you will go home to today who will mock you for going to church. For the friend who calls you a bigot because you believe the Bible to the pain of living with a chronic disease. The key to living this life well is to believe that God has already defeated and God will already defeat. God will defeat all evil. Until then, we live in the already. But the not yet isn't here. And so because of that, we struggle, we face temptation, we have doubt, we're tempted to walk away. We hurt each other. God sometimes seems silent and distant. And sometimes evil appears to win. But what is true already is, as Paul put it, we are already seated with Christ in the heavens. And so until then, let's long for that day. And let's courageously endure beasts in the meantime. This is not an easy path but its destination is sure. Father, we ask you that you would take this attempt to describe the truths of Daniel 7 and you would transform our hearts and our minds with it. We pray that you would deeply encourage us And help us to see the power that is already ours in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.